hard to make observational studies that change your practice. Septic shock, significant mortality. So there was a difference here. Glutrocortisone is not something we typically talk about. Buy or sell glutrocortisone. Is that small difference clinically significant? Perhaps that can lead to some confounders. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Super excited to have you here as we talk about another important clinical topic, another important hot off the press article as it pertains to patients that we see with septic shock. As we begin the discussion, as we always do here on the podcast, let me bring in my most amazing co-stars, co-hosts here on the podcast, Dr. Peter W., Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Rob Rodriguez. In addition, we've got a bonus for you. We have a special guest who is a resident with Dr. Rodriguez at UCSF, Dr. Rashid Alhadi. I'm going to let Rob do his introduction momentarily. He's going to be assisting with us as we go through the next few months here on the podcast with respect to preparing the agenda and handout that all of you love to reference that's available on the website. But Peter, we are coming up on AAEM. The American Academy of Emergency Medicine Scientific Assembly, it is in your hometown of New Orleans. And actually, I think it's getting started in the next few days. So I'm going to turn to you first. How are things in New Orleans? So things in New Orleans are just fantastic. Great weather right now, a little bit cloudy, but cool for us and wonderful to host AAM in New Orleans. Plenty of food, plenty of music, and we're looking forward to our recess course as well. That'll happen later this week. So looking forward to that. Sounds great. I am looking forward to connecting with you in person after many, many months. So I will see you soon, my friend. Headed up to Philly, Dr. Greenwood, how are things during this podcast? Well, it's been a really fun past week or two. It is now getting in the midst of spring marathon season. Now I say that not because I'm running marathons, but For those of you who know me, I gush about all the time. My wife is an avid marathon runner. So we were just up in Boston for the Boston Marathon. I love going up there, especially for the Boston Marathon. It's such an incredible event. The city is wonderful. And this year was the 10th anniversary, as you all know, of the Boston Marathon bombing. So they had a lot of great events planned around commemorating that. The unity that's up in that city right now is just unreal. And now she is off to London, and she just texted that they arrived in London early this morning, and she'll be running the London Marathon. So I'll be looking forward to seeing pictures of all the events and exciting things that happened out there. So shout out to all our listeners in England and the UK. That is simply amazing, John. Congrats to her. Really such a huge accomplishment. And then a week later, doing it all over again. (laughs) Unbelievable, unbelievable. So huge congrats. All right, transitioning now out to the West Coast, Dr. Rodriguez. Yeah, John, I get tired just hearing about those marathons. That's quite an accomplishment. Things are great out here. Weather's fantastic. Looking forward to the summer. Son coming back from college after his freshman year. And yeah, just really excited to be a glorious summer. And Rob, did you want to say a few more words about Rashid? Yeah, so Rashid is one of our EM residents here at UCSF, and he has a keen interest in critical care and wanted to bring him into our little group here to help him 
look at some topics in critical care and also to introduce him to all of you, to our co-hosts. And yeah, he's done a great job with this agenda, this article that we're going to talk about. And I wanted to thank him for that. And this article that we're going to talk about is called Comparative Effectiveness of Flugicortisone and Hydrocortisone versus Hydrocortisone Alone among patients with septic shock. And this was in JAMA very, very recently, just within the past month in JAMA Internal Medicine. The lead author is Bosch, B-O-S-C-H. And we all, of course, know that sepsis is a huge problem. It occurs, leads to 1.7 million U.S. hospitalizations every year. And a third of the hospitalizations from sepsis result in death. And septic shock has therefore an associated fatality rate of greater than 30%. So this is a big, big topic. And we all, of course, are familiar with the past recommendations about using hydrocortisone in septic shock. So we're going to discuss this article that may lead us to have some changes in it. And so, Mike, give us a little bit more background about septic shock and the rationale for this trial. Thanks so much, Rob. Well, as you said, septic shock, significant mortality. Recall, and just to put us all on the same page, that as we know, septic shock is a form of distributive shock, primarily involving vasoplegia and organ dysfunction, and following fluid resuscitation, or more recently, concomitant with fluid resuscitation, we typically add vasopressor administration or vasopressor medications to the resuscitation of our patients with septic shock, whether it be in the ED, ICU, or wherever patients start to decompensate from septic shock. In terms of corticosteroids, we're all familiar with using corticosteroids, say hydrocortisone, as you mentioned, Rob, already in the treatment of patients with septic shock who are refractory, say, to fluid therapy along with potential vasopressor therapy. And along those lines, we typically administer hydrocortisone. Now, this particular article, in essence, looks at the administration of flugicortisone. So just to say a second or two, recall that flugicortisone is not something we typically talk about with corticosteroid administration in the resuscitation of septic shock. Recall that this is a very strong mineralocorticoid. So in terms of flugicortisone, we are typically using it for a number of conditions. It's usually used to replace aldosterone in various forms. So patients with adrenal insufficiency, perhaps cerebral salt wasting syndrome, those that have congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and even in those with, say, orthostatic intolerance or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, we are using flugicortisone because of its powerful mineralocorticoid effect. Now, when we talk in general about corticosteroids and septic shock, well, we've all known and we've talked here on the podcast numerous times just about the controversies with steroid use. And with respect to steroids and septic shock, going back many decades, initially high-dose corticosteroids were used in hopes of a mortality benefit. But after additional trials and meta-analysis, we know that we've moved away from high-dose corticosteroids. And the current 2021 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines recommend adding hydrocortisone at a typical dose of 200 milligrams per day, so not high-dose corticosteroids, for patients with septic shock who are requiring vasopressors. 
Typically, we tend to think about administering corticosteroids as we're thinking about potentially adding a second vasopressor into patient's resuscitation. So with respect to that, Rob, this particular study looked at incorporating hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone in patients with septic shock. So the overall objective of this study was to compare the effectiveness of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone with or versus hydrocortisone alone in patients being treated and resuscitated with septic shock. So John, let me turn things over to you just to go over a little bit more of the details with respect to the methods in this particular study. Yeah, Mike. So this was a large multi-center observational cohort study that was pretty much a database study that took place between 2016 and 2020. So about four years and included about 20% of the U.S. inpatient hospitalizations of the database itself. So this was a pretty large database over a four-year period that is relatively recent. So reflecting probably a lot of the clinical practice changes that we've incorporated in sepsis management over the past few years. The patients that were included were those adults who were admitted to an ICU or a step-down unit with septic shock, and that means they were on norepinephrine, and they began hydrocortisone within three days of their hospital admission. Now, they also excluded kids less than 18 years old, those with alternative indications for hydrocortisone therapy. So if they saw that there was primary adrenal insufficiency, orthostatic hypotension, or some sort of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, all these things that generally require standing dose hydrocortisone, they did not include. So what they did in order to actually review and analyze this study was they accessed this premier healthcare database and searched for septic shock using ICD-10 codes. And they explicitly focused on patients with higher mortality so those that were at a high risk of not doing well and maybe achieving a significant mortality outcome. They used the hospital billing data to find treatment assignments, specifically the hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone group versus hydrocortisone alone. And study day zero was considered when the initiation of hydrocortisone therapy started. Now, the primary outcome of this study was a composite outcome of hospital death or discharge to hospice. And the secondary outcomes they looked at were in hospital deaths, vasopressor free days by day 28, and then hospital free days by day 28. Now, just to be a little bit more thorough, they did look at some safety outcomes, including hypernatremia and healthcare-associated infections. Now, these are all potential side effects that clinically we would worry about when initiating steroid therapy. So an important set of secondary safety outcomes. So Peter, now that we've outlined the background, the methods, walk us through the results. What did the authors find? Absolutely, John. Thanks for setting it up. So when we're looking at the results, I think you first have to look at the number of patients with septic shock who actually received norepinephrine. And that number was over 384,000. And so when they looked at that group and then said, who meets our inclusion criteria and over 88,000, so 88,275 patients met the inclusion criteria. If we're looking for hydrocortisone treatment alone, that number was 85,995. 
then if we look at those patients with septic shock who received hydrocortisone plus ludrocortisone, that number was 2,280. So a big difference between those two, the hydrocortisone group, and then compared to the hydrocortisone to flugicortisone group. The primary outcomes, okay? Death or discharge to a hospice. In the hydrocortisone, flugicortisone group, that was 47.2%. And then if we compared that to the hydrocortisone only group, that was 50.8%. So there was a difference here. The adjusted risk difference was 3.7% with a p-value differentiation of 0.001, favoring the combined hydrocortisone flugicortisone group. If we then look for risk reduction with added flugicortisone, that held true even when we did subgroup analysis, looking at age, looking at gender, looking at history of CHF, and looking at time to corticosteroid initiation. So all those subgroups, this held true with a mortality benefit for the hydrocortisone, flugicortisone group. If we then look now at secondary outcomes, you look at hospital death, hydrocortisone to the flugicortisone, 39.3%, compared to hydrocortisone only, 42.7%. And again, adjusted risk difference of 3.7%. We look at vasopressor-free days, the hydrocortisone, flugicortisone group, 13.8 days. And you compare that to the hydrocortisone only group, 12.9 days. And again, there's significant difference between the two, adjusted risk difference of 0.9 days and with a p-value of less than 0.001. We look at hospital-free days. This wound up being 0.7 days with 95% confidence interval at 0.6 to 0.8. In the hydrocortisone to flugicortisone group, this was 8.7 days. And in the hydrocortisone-only treated group, this is 8.4 days. Adjusted risk difference, again, of 0.7 days. We look at safety outcomes. Our next measure, looking at hypernatremia, there was no difference between the two groups. In the combined hydrocortisone, flugicortisone group, 11.4%. In the hydrocortisone treatment only group, 11.3%. And then lastly, if we look at healthcare associated infections, again, no difference between those two groups. The hydrocortisone, flugicortisone group, 1.4% of healthcare-associated infections compared to hydrocortisone treated only of 1%. So now, what do we think about all this, putting it back together, Rob? Yeah, thanks. That was an outstanding summary of the article team. Thanks, Rashid, Peter, Mike, and John. Really great summary of the article. So I want to go one by one to each of you and discuss your general thoughts on the article, limitations, and your take-home point with a specific answer to this question, buy or sell flugicortisone. So let's go in the same order that we started with. Mike, what do you think? Oh, put me on the spot first. Well, <laughs> well, Rob, in terms of the limitations, you know, when we go through these studies, we like to identify the ones that 
the authors identify, and I think we would all align with these, it's observational. And so there's always the potential for introduction of bias, unmeasured co-founders in there. It's not randomized where people are specifically given hydrocortisone and then randomized to hydrocortisone, flugocortisone. And we're looking at databases, so mining databases for data to look for an association. In general, the addition of flugocortisone is not common practice for me. I will say that. And in terms of this particular study, you can see, well, septic shock has a pretty high mortality. So when we just look at what the mortality was among these folks at roughly 50% for both cohorts, while it's statistically significant to me, you know, as I think about this, is that small difference clinically significant? Just raising that question there met the statistical significance, but I don't know that I'm ready to close out this podcast, go look for investment opportunities into flugocortisone, and hope that things turn out well there. So just kicking this discussion off, I'm not a buyer yet. I don't know that I would sell, but I would hold for a little bit additional information. So that's just something to start our discussion. That's awesome. Great discussion, Mike. How about you, John? Yeah, Rob. Mike, I'm pretty in line, I think, with what your thoughts are. I took a look back at the approaches trial, and that was still very recent, right? So that was a trial from 2018. And the findings here are generally consistent with what that randomized control trial found as well. So I think this adds to some support to consider using fludrocortisone as a supplement, but certainly I truly believe that at least one other dedicated randomized trial should probably be done. And I think this gives some evidence for that to show that it is in fact efficacious. I think there's biological plausibility here. It makes sense that it could supplement to what the glucocorticoid steroids often do. And maybe it's something that we're missing. Now, in terms of limitations, looking at this paper, you know, it was kind of interesting. So when they broke down the different patient groups and I would expect this, but it was like over 70% of the patients who received dual therapy were in teaching hospitals compared to hydrocortisone alone, which was 50% of the patients were in teaching hospitals. So perhaps that can lead to some confounders that we're talking about. Maybe there's different therapeutic strategies in teaching hospitals. And believe me, I'm not knocking our community centers. I know they do an awesome job. But certainly in academic hospitals, there's confounders of potentially introducing new therapy, maybe more early adopters, but also they take on more complex patients. So maybe that balances out. I don't know. But it's hard to tell from the data of this paper. So that could be a big limitation that could impact the outcomes of this study. But overall, I agree. I am not yet switching to dual therapy for my patients with septic shock. However, I am eagerly awaiting, because I'm sure it will happen, an additional clinical trial to either support or refute these results. Excellent. Nice job, John. Peter. So just to echo these two guys, you know, the strength of an observational study is not that great. However, the numbers are pretty compelling. These are big ends to look at. And then the patients were way sick, high 40s mortality rate. So you can't question that when everybody's doing sepsis studies and septic shock studies and looking at 20 to 30% mortalities, it really tells you that the cohort that we looked at was sick. But again, the compelling need to add fludra onto this, mineral, corticoid, 
coverage is for me not there. I think the pathophysiology for me and my understanding for septic shock is that, that there is a relative steroid insufficiency that the adrenals are squeezed out all they could acutely. And we're just trying to give replacement therapy here. And I'm not so sure that replacement therapy for mineral corticoids is that indicated until I see a little bit stronger evidence for that. So I'm not a hater for Fludro. I'm just not the adopter. Excellent. Yeah, my take is similar, but I'm going to say I'm almost a strong buyer at this point. So this is observational study. It's hard to make observational studies that change your practice. And so there are a ton of limitations that you discussed confounders, like perhaps, as you said, John, more of these patients that got the dual therapy were in teaching hospitals. You know, there could have been other differences, perhaps people that give dual therapy provide more meticulous care, perhaps. So there is a lot of potential for confounders. Yet I kind of look back at like really the old studies, like the original French study from, I think it was like 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. The original studies included fludrocortisone when they were just trying to test steroids in general for septic shock. And the most notable ones, I don't have the authors or the, the journal off the top of my head, but I do distinctly remember that the ones that showed the most benefit in randomized trials versus placebo included fludrocortisone. And so I had for years been wondering whether we should give fludrocortisone, and at times I've given it. The three of you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think it's only given by NG tube. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, it's um, oral therapy, I think. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I was in the past limited in terms of giving it because some of my patients were bad shock and, you know, I didn't really want to put stuff down their NG tube. So I also look at a big sample size. I also look at the adverse events and there's really no difference in adverse events. It's hard to come up with pathophysiological mechanism for there to be big, significant side effects with fludrocortisone. From my understanding, it's cheap. So for all of those reasons, I would say I'm a buyer almost at this point with giving it to those patients that do have an NG tube that are in big time septic shock and those, again, that have an NG tube and that I can give it. So a little bit of difference there. Thanks, Rob. I think who you're referring to from an author study, I think is Anon or Anani, depending on... Uh, yeah, depending on how you pronounce that. And the early papers, I think, might have been in JAMA, but you're correct, about two decades ago. So I think in terms of change management, just speaking globally, and the three groups of folks, whether there's early adopters, fence sitters, and resistors, you hear that Dr. Rodriguez is an adopter. Perhaps the other three were fence sitters here waiting for some additional information on fluidocortisone. But your points are really well taken just about the minimal downside physiologic rationale, minimal downside in terms of side effects. As you were saying that, it made me think of the overall metabolic cocktail for septic shock and potentially physiologic rationale and little downside to vitamin C, thiamine, 
and hydrocortisone. But having said that, that's not what we're talking about here, but really, really great points, the three of you. So my thanks. Any final thoughts before we bring this podcast to a close? Peter? You know, from a final thought standpoint, I am pushed a little bit by Rob's comments that it's not harmful and it's cheap. So if we're going to err, you can err on that. But I would also state, as Rob did, that you have to have a functional gut in order to use this. And people in profound septic shock oftentimes do not have that, but something to consider. Well said. John, final thoughts as we drive towards the close. I appreciate all your guys' thoughts and particularly the horse historical reference there, Rob. You know, I think it is an interesting topic and certainly it just goes to show how many understudied pathways we have for an illness that has still such a really high mortality. So I think we're all looking. We're looking for things that might be able to help and add on to what we've already found. So I'll keep my eyes and ears open. I'm not a naysayer just yet. Sounds good. And Dr. Rodriguez, final comment, and then we'll close this one out. No, I, I like the analogy or the metaphor that you used about early adopters, fence sitters. I'm not completely off the fence, but let's just say that I have one leg on the ground and, <laughs> and kind of thing. But that topic had really been on my mind for a long time. The fact that the biggest study or the study that found the most effect had in, included fludrocortisone. And I'd always kind of wondered why we didn't use the full regiment that they used in that Anani trial. And that's exactly what it was. It was the Anani trial. But yeah, we'll see. I'm probably going to give it when available now. All right. Well, with that, we are going to close out this podcast. Our huge and most sincere thanks to Rashid for putting together the agenda. Very much looking forward to working with him over the coming months here on CCPEM. Really, really great discussion. Great job, Rashid, in putting together the agenda. For all of you that are listening to this podcast, know that when you visit the website, when you click on and listen to the podcast with every episode, we do have a handout associated with that, that you can all do a deeper dive, look at some of the stuff that we've talked about and have a reference for you on these cutting edge, hot off the press articles that we really like to feature here on the podcast and keep you all up to date with cutting edge literature that may or may not be practice changing. So my thanks to all of you. For those of you traveling to New Orleans, safe travels. We hope that AAEM goes outstandingly well for all of you. Looking forward to seeing many of you in New Orleans. Peter, I will see you in a few days. And when we gather back on our next podcast, we'll hear about all the great things that happened in New Orleans. John, good luck to the wife running the London Marathon. We will mm -hmm. anticipate and expect an update on record-breaking times for her so once no, again be there dog that would be cool once again this is mike winters from the university of maryland school of medicine in baltimore wishing all of you an outstanding week thanks again for joining us on the podcast we will talk to you on our next episode bye for now